You've got work friends, you've got best friends, and now you've got ghoul friends. Hello, and welcome to episode one of Spooky Stories with Celeste. I'm Celeste. And I'm just here for the comic relief. (laughs) And that's Caitlin, if you don't know. (laughs) Yes. um, So this is kind of an idea for a series, like smaller episodes, I guess. Yeah. Um, We asked it on Instagram. It got a actually overwhelming yes vote. So I think we're going to try it and see how this goes. We don't have to do them if we don't like them, but... No, I think it's a great idea. Okay. It's either this or you become a phone sex operator, and you didn't seem very interested in that, so here we are. I don't think I would be very good at that. I don't have a... I, I, see, I don't hear the, the sexy thing, the sexy voice. I don't... It's just my voice. I don't know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's hot. Who is it? Leanne was like, you need to read dirty books <laughs> for a living. And I'm like, if y'all are paying me to do that, then I would happily. No, listen, don't pay her because all she's going to do is giggle because when she <laughs> comes home and I'm listening to my smutty book mm. and just any hint of anything silly happening, she is just giggling away. So you can't take it seriously. Listen, I have had to Google things that I've heard in your (laughs) books because I did not know that it was possible to put things there. Um, And apparently it is. So um, after listening to that recent one you did, I think you may need some spiritual guidance (laughs) because that was a very questionable book. I need something. (laughs) Probably help. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe if we ever get a Patreon, I'll read dirty smutty books on patreon that would be pretty funny yeah that would be funny <laughs> only fans with celeste <laughs> but it's just me reading <laughs> literally fair enough okay well not a bad idea okay all right business uh, adventure here we go all right so this is going to be an adventure um now keep in mind all these uh stories that i'll be reading are public domain so copyright free yay um and i tried to find authors that you may not have heard of before that wrote horror stories awesome so, for example, today's story is by Edith Nesbitt, which is not as well-known of a name in, like, the horror game, but mm-hmm. um, she's actually a great writer, and she has many, many stories. So if you like this one, there are definitely more. Okay. Um, and if you do like listening to horror stories in your podcast, um, highly recommend, uh, I believe it's Parcast. It's called Haunted Places Ghost Stories. Okay. And that is, like, the entire show is that they produce these stories with music and effects, and it's, like, a whole thing, but it's very, very good. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So not horror-related, but it's, like, a short story that I remember in probably middle school or high school reading. I feel like we've talked about this before. Yeah, and you're going to remember it. I'm never going to remember the name. It's basically... Oh, they're like in the like forest in an island, and like it's the most dangerous game. That's the one because I remember it being really cool because game is a double entendre of um, like game as in like a game you play. Yeah, or game like Like meat hunt. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that one, too. That was a great... We should read that. That's a good one. It is a good one. You know what else is Mm -hmm. a good... Similar to that was um, the book... uh, Shoot, I just had it in my head. Hunger Games? No, it wasn't the Hunger Games. I just remember Big Pighead. Oh, 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 oh. Um, I popcorned you. Oh, you did. I popcorned I had it, um, Lord of Flies. Lord of the Flies, Piggy. Yes. Oh, that was a fucking weird ass. Yeah, it was. I remember. I read that in probably like ninth grade. Yeah, something like that. I remember that. That was a wild. That was a good one. It was. And I think it's important too when it comes to like, I'm talking specifically to horror, is like, you know, we think of like Mary Shelley or. Bram mm-hmm. Stoker, but there are so many authors, you know, maybe not as well known, that wrote stories and um, like this one's pretty damn good. Like it, I'm it, excited. It got me pretty good. All right. So one thing I would like to preface is um, 
the one thing that kept popping into my head when we were, I was reading this was uh, the Uncanny Valley. And I want you to keep that in the back of your head during this because for those that don't know, the Uncanny Valley theory is this idea that like fear of things that look human but aren't like dolls are like ingrained into our DNA to be afraid of, Mm -hmm. which immediately makes me question, you know, what the hell happened thousands of years ago that made someone so afraid of something that looked human but wasn't that is now part of our DNA. Genetics, yeah. Right. Yeah. So keep that in mind. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Could be. Keep that in mind through the story because um, the Uncanny Valley may not have it all that wrong. And this is also a great story of why you should listen to the advice of the locals. <laughs> okay. All right. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. I'm going <clears> to <throat> get my instrument ready. We got our handy dandy LaCroix there if you need. I may need to take hydration breaks through this. You just tell me and I'll just start talking. Okay. And Plenty we'll, to talk about. Plenty yes. going on up here in this noggin. <laughs> and we'll stop throughout the story just to make sure we're all following because I hate when you read something you're like, what the fuck did I just read? <laughs> like, I don't know what happened. Absolutely. Um, but all overall, it's a very easy to understand story. Okay. All right. Ready? Sorry, my toes are snapping. <laughs> Snap your toes. Snap get a blanket. <laughs> Cuddle in. Cuddle in, because even though it's hotter than hell outside, that does not mean... Just crank your AC down. Get a blankie. Yep. It cannot be, you know, it can be spooky and chilly inside. It's spooky season in this house. It is, absolutely. All right. All right. Does it have a name? Uh, the name of the story is called Man Size and Marble. Okay. And you're going to find out why. Okay. All right. Although every word of the story is as true as despair, I do not expect people to believe it. Nowadays, a rational explanation is required before belief is possible. Let me then at once offer the rational explanation which finds most favor among those who have heard the tale of my life's tragedy. It is held that we were under a delusion, Laura and I, on that 31st of October, and that the supposition places the whole matter on a satisfactory and believable basis. The reader can judge, and when he too has heard my story, how far, this, how far is this an explanation and in what sense is it rational? There were three who took part, Laura and I and another man. The other man still lives and can speak to the truth of the least credible part of the story. So that's kind of like the prologue. Prologue, yep. All right. I I feel like shit's about to go down. (laughs) Yeah, he's like setting it up like I'm about to tell you something wild. Okay. I never knew in my life what it was to have as much money as I required to supply the most ordinary needs, good colors, books, and cab fares, And when we were married, we knew quite well that we should only be able to live at all by strict punctuality and attention to business. I used to paint in those days, and Laura used to write, and we felt sure we could keep the pot at least simmering. Living in town was out of the question, so we went to look for a cottage in the country, which should be at once sanitary and picturesque. Those are two important things in a house, (laughs) sanitary and picturesque. (laughs) So rarely do these two qualities meet in one cottage that our search was for some time Um, quite fruitless. We tried advertisements, but most of the desirable rural residences, which we did look at, proved to be lacking in both essentials. And when a cottage chanced to have drains, it always had stucco as well and was shaped like a tea caddy. And if we found a vine or rose-covered porch, corruption invariably lurked within. So I think he's saying is they're having a hard time finding a house that they like. In their budget. Right. Same. Something's never changed, folks. (laughs) House hunting still sucks. (laughs) Our minds got so befogged by the eloquence of house agents and the rival disadvantages of the fever traps and outrages to beauty, which we had seen and scorned, that I very much doubt whether either of us, on our wedding morning, knew the difference between a house and a haystack. But when we got away from friends and the house agents on our honeymoon, our wits 
grew clear again, and we knew a pretty cottage when at last we saw one. It was at Brenzet, a little village set on a hill against the southern marshes. We had gone there from the seaside village where we were staying to see the church and two fields from the church when we found the cottage. It stood quite by itself, about two miles from the village. It was a long, low building with rooms sticking out in unexpected places. There was a bit of stonework ivy-covered and moss-grown, just two old rooms, um, all that was left of a big house that had once stood there, and round the stonework the house had grown up. Stripped of its roses and jasmines, it would have been hideous. As it stood, it was charming, and after a brief examination, we took it. It was absurdly cheap. The rest of our honeymoon, we spent grubbing in and out second-hand shops in the county town, picking up bits of old oak and Chippendale chairs for our furnishing. We wound up uh, with a run-up to town and a visit to Liberty's, and soon the low, oak-beamed, lattice-windowed rooms began to be home. There was a jolly old-fashioned garden with grass paths and no end of hollyhocks and sunflowers and lilies. From the window, you could see the marsh pastures, and beyond them, the blue, thin line of the sea. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were as happy as the summer was glorious and settled down into the work sooner than we ourselves expected. I was never tired of sketching the view and the wonderful cloud effects from the open lattice, and Laura would sit at the table and write verses about them, in which I mostly played the part of the foreground. So Okay. They found a house. They found a house. Not perfect, but, but cute, home. and it'll do. Do you need to wet your whistle? You doing I do. okay? I feel like you're hydration. You get a little hydration there, a little LaCroix. We also found Das Croix, the mm-hmm. German version. We've only been here almost a year and a half and yep. had not found it. And we found it. There's only lemon flavor, but I'll take it. When we can't find LaCroix, that's gonna work. It's mm-hmm. delicious, refreshing, and yes. oh so yummy. It is. Okay. I, all right. The whistle has been wet. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> We <laughs> all right. We got a tall old peasant woman to do our house for us. Her face and figure were good, though her cooking was of the homeliest, but she understood all about gardening and told us all the old names of the coppices and cornfields and the stories of the smugglers and highwaymen and better still of the things that walked and of the sights which met one in lonely glens of a starlit night. She was a great comfort to us because Laura hated housekeeping as much as I love uh, folklore. Sorry, paged her. <laughs> and soon came to leave all the domestic business to Mrs. Dorman and to use her legends and little magazine stories. We had three months of married happiness and did not have a single quarrel. I don't believe that. <laughs> One October evening, I had been down to smoke a pipe with the doctor, our only neighbor, a pleasant young Irishman. Laura had stayed at home to finish a comic sketch of a village episode for the monthly Marplot. I left her laughing over her own jokes and came in to find a crumpled heap of pale muslin weeping on the window seat. Good heavens, my darling, what's the matter, I cried, taking her into my arms. She leaned her dark little head against my shoulder and went on crying. I had never seen her cry before. We had always been so happy. You see, and I felt some frightful misfortune had happened. What is the matter? Do speak. It's Mrs. Dorman, she sobbed. What has she done? I inquired, immensely relieved. She says she must go before the end of the month, and she says her niece is ill. She's gone to see her now, but I don't believe that's the reason, because her niece is always ill. I believe someone has been setting her against us. Her manner was so queer. <laughs> and this is literally how it is written. Remind you, this is old, older versions of English. Never mind, pussy, I said. What a nickname. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't cry or I'll have to cry too. She dried her eyes obediently on my handkerchief and even smiled faintly. 
But you see, she went on, it really is serious because these village people are so sheepy, and if you won't, if one won't do a thing, you may be quite sure none of the others will. And I shall have to cook the dinners and wash up the hateful greasy plates, and you'll have to carry cans of water about and clean the boots and the knives, and we shall never have any time for work or earn any money or anything. We shall have to work all day and only be able to rest when we are wedding, waiting for the kettle to boil. So she's mad she has to, like, clean her own house. Well, Tough. It's unfortunate, huh? <laughs> It is. Pussy. <laughs> pussy. It's tough, <laughs> tough shit, pussy. I represented to her, even if we had to perform these duties, the day would still be present for some margin of other toils and recre- re- recreations. But she refused to see the matter in any of the grayest light. She was very unreasonable, my Laura, but I could not have loved her any more as if she had been as reasonable as Waitley. I'll speak to Mrs. Dorman when she comes back, and if I can't come to terms with her... Um, and see if I can't come to terms with her. Perhaps she wants a a rise in her screw. It'll be all right. Let's walk to the church. The church was a large and lonely one, and we loved to go there, especially on bright nights. The path skirted a wood, cut through it once, and ran along the crest of the hill through two meadows and around the churchyard wall, which over the old yews loomed in black masses of shadow. This path, which was partly paved, was called the Beer Balk, for it had been the way which corpses had been carried to burial. Mm -hmm. The churchyard was richly treed and was shaded by great elms that stood just outside and stretched their majestic arms in benediction over the happy dead. A large low porch let one into the building by a Norman doorway and a heavy oak door studded with iron. Inside, the arches rose into darkness, and between them, reticulated windows, which stood out white in the moonlight. In the chancel, the windows were of a rich glass, which showed in faint light their noble coloring, and made the black oak of the choir pews hardly more solid in the shadows. But on each side of the altar lay a gray marble figure of a knight in full-plate armor, lying upon a low slab, with hands in everlasting prayer. And these figures, oddly enough, were always to be seen if there were any glimmer of light in the church. Their names were lost, but the peasants told of them they had been fierce and wicked men, marauders by land and sea, who had been the scourge of their time, and been guilty of deeds so foul that the house they had lived in, the big house, by the way, that stood on the side of our cottage, had been stricken by lightning and the vengeance of heaven. But for all that, the gold of their heirs had brought them a place in the church. Looking at the bad, hard faces reproduced in the marble, the story was easily believed." The church looked at its best and weirdest on that night, for the shadows of the yew trees fell through the window, windows upon the floor of the nave and touched the pillars with a tattered shade. We sat down together without speaking and watched the solemn beauty of the old church, with some of the awe that inspired its early builders. We walked to the chancel and looked at the sleeping warriors. Then we rested for some time on the stone seat of the porch, looking out over the quiet stretch of moonlit meadows, feeling in every fiber of our being the peace of the night and our happy love and came away with a small sense that even scrubbing and blackletting were but small troubles at the worst. Mrs. Dorman had come back from the village, and I had once invited her to a tete-a-tete. I'm not quite sure what that means. Now, Mrs. Dorman, I said when I had got her into my painting room, what's all this about you not staying with us? I should be glad to get away, sir, before the end of the month, she answered with her usual placid dignity. Have you any fault to find, Mrs. Dorman? "'None at all, sir. You and your lady have been the most kind. I'm sure. Well, what is it then? Are your wages not high enough?' "'No, sir. I get quite enough. Then why not stay? I'd rather not, with some hesitation. My niece is ill. But your niece has been ill ever since we came. No answer. There was a long and awkward silence. I broke it. "'Can't you stay for another month?' I asked. "'No, sir. I'm bound to go by Thursday. And this was on Monday.' 
Well, I must say, I think you might have let us know before. There's no time now to get anyone else, and your mistress is not fit to do heavy housework. Can't you stay till next week? I might be able to come back next week. I was now convinced that all she wanted was a brief holiday, which we would have been willing enough to let her have as soon as we could get a substitute. Are you? Yeah, I feel like they're kind of being rude to her. Kind of. Like, bro, it's your house. I know, and like, <laughs> Laura is just like, absolutely, just... Can't, can't clean. Yeah, like she just can't be bothered to do that. Do you think I want to clean? No, I do not. <laughs> Mrs. Dorman's just trying to live her life, okay? Cut her some slack. Give her, give her a break. Right. But why must you go this week, I persisted. Come out with it. Mrs. Dorman drew the little shawl, which she always wore, tightly across her bosom as though she was cold. Then she said with sort of effort, They say, sir, this was a big house in Catholic times, and there were many deeds done here. The nature of the deeds might be vaguely inferred from the inflection of Mrs. Dorman's voice, which was enough to make one's blood run cold. I was glad Laura was not in the room. She was always nervous, as highly strung natures are, and I felt that these tales about our house, with her impulsive manner and contagious uh, credulity, excuse me, might have made our home less dear to my wife. All right, I'm going to take a hydration break for a minute. <laughs> Those are some big words. You're, you're crushing it. I couldn't say that without... Stumbling. I never forget that, you know, I forget how to read when I actually have to read. <laughs> Remember popcorn and, uh, like, elementary school? That was where my anxiety began, I swear to God. It really was. Or what I liked was, but it made me never pay attention. If you knew, like, if you were going around in, like, a circle, mm-hmm. you'd count the paragraphs, and then you'd just, like, read yours over and over to yeah. make sure, like, you had it, like, practiced. And Gotta know. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. All right. I think I'm good again. <laughs> Your whistle is wet. Yes. <laughs> Uh, tell me about it, Mrs. Dorman. You needn't tell me, mind about telling me. I'm not like the young people who make fun of such things, which was partly true. Well, sir, she sank her voice. You may have seen in the church beside the altar two shapes. You mean the effigies of the knights in armor? I said cheerfully. I mean them two bodies, drawn out man size and marble, she returned. And I had to admit that her description was a thousand times more graphic than mine. To say nothing of a certain weird force of an uncanniness about the phrase, drawn out man size and marble. They do say, as on All Saints' Eve, the two bodies sit up on their slabs and get off of them and walk down the aisle in their marble. And as the church clock strikes eleven, they walk out the church door and over the graves and along the beer bulk. And if it's a wet night, the marks of their feet are there in the morning. And where do they go? I asked, rather fascinated. They come here to their home, sir, and if anyone meets them... Well, what then? I asked. But no, not another word I could get from her, save that her niece was ill and she must go. After what I had scorned to discuss the niece, and tried to get from Mrs. Dorman more details about the legend, I could get nothing but warnings. Whatever you do, sir, lock the door early on All Saints' Eve, and make the cross sign over the doorstep and on the windows. But has anyone ever seen these things? I persisted. That's not for me to say. I know what I know, sir. Well, who was here last year? No one, sir. The lady owned the house only stayed here in the summer, and she always went to London a full month before the night. I'm sorry to inconvenience you and your lady, but my niece is ill, and I must go on Thursday. I could have shaken her for that absurd reiteration of that obvious fiction after she had told me her real reasons. Mm -mm -mm. She was determined to go, nor could our united entreaties move her in the least. I did not tell Laura the legend of the shapes that walked in the marble, because a legend, partly because a legend concerning our house might perhaps trouble my wife, and partly, I think, from some more occult reason. This was not quite the same to me as any other story, and I did not want to talk about it till the day was over. 
I had very soon ceased to think of the legend. However, I was painting a portrait of Laura against the lattice window, and I could not think of much else. I had got a splendid background of yellow and gray sunset and was working away with enthusiasm on her, at her lace. On Thursday, Mrs. Dorman went. She relented at parting so far to say, Don't put yourself about too much, ma'am, and if there's any little thing I can do next week, I'm sure I shan't mind. From which I inferred that, inferred that she wished to come back to us after Halloween. Up to the last, she adhered to the fiction of the nieces with touching fidelity. Thursday passed off pretty well. Laura marked the ability, showed marked ability in the matter of steak and potatoes, and I confess that my knives and plates, which I insisted upon washing, were better done than I had dared to expect. Friday came. It is about what happened on that Friday that is, that is written. I wonder if I should have believed it if anyone had told it to me. I will write the story of it as quickly and plainly as I can. Everything that happened on that day is burnt into my brain. I shall not forget anything or leave anything out. I got up early, I remember, and let the kitchen fire and had just achieved a smoky success when my wife came running down um, as sunny and sweet as the clear October morning itself. We prepared breakfast together and found it very good fun. The housework was soon done and the brushes and brooms and pails were quiet again. The house was still indeed. It is wonderful what a difference one makes in a house. We really missed Mrs. Dorman, quite apart from the considerations concerning pots and pans. We spent the day in dusting our books and putting them straight and dined gaily on cold steak and coffee. Laura was, if possible, brighter and gayer and sweeter than usual, and I began to think of her uh, that a little domestic toil was really good for her. We had never been so merry since we were married, and the walk we had in the afternoon was, I think, the happiest time of my life. When we watched the deep scarlet clouds slowly pale into the leaden gray against a pale green sky, and saw the white mist curl up along the hedgerows in the distant march, we came back to the house silently hand in hand. You are sad, my darling, I said half-jestingly, as we sat down together in the parlor. I expected a disclaimer, for my own silence had been the silence of complete happiness. To my surprise, she said, yes, I think I am sad or uneasy. Yes, I don't think I'm very well. I have shivered three or four times since we came in. It's not cold, is it? No, I said, and hoped it was not chill caught from the treacherous mist that rolled up from the marshes in the dying light. No, she said, she did not think so. Then after a silence, she spoke suddenly. Do you ever have presentiments of evil? Mm-mm. No, I said, smiling, and I shouldn't believe in them if I had. I do, she went on. The night my father died, I knew it, even though he was right away in the north of Scotland. I did not answer in words. She sat looking at the fire for some time, gently stroking my hand. At last she sprang up, came behind me, and drawing my head back, kissed me. There, it's over now, she said. What a baby I am. Come, light the candles, and we'll have some of the new Rubenstein duets. And we spent a happy hour or two at the piano. At about half past ten, I began to long for a good night pipe. But Laura looked so white that I felt it would be brutal, brutal of me to fill our sitting room with the fumes of strong Cavendish. I'll take my pipe outside, I said. Let me come, too. No, sweetheart, not tonight. You're much too tired. I shan't be long. Get to bed, or I shall have an invalid nurse tomorrow, as well as the boots to clean. I kissed her and was turning to go when she flung her arms around my neck and told me, it held me as if she would never let go again. I stroked her hair. Come, pussy, you're overtired. The housework has been too much for you. She loosened up her clasp and drew a deep breath. No, we've been very happy today, Jack, haven't we? Don't stay out too long. I won't, my dearie. Following? Mm-hmm. I feel like shit's about to go down now. I think it is, too. I strolled out of the front door, leaving it unlatched. What a night it was. The jagged masses of heavy, dark clouds were rolling at intervals from horizon to horizon, and thin white wreaths covered the stars. Through all the rush of the cloud river, the moon swam, breasting the waves and disappearing again in the darkness. 
When now and again her light reached the woodlands, they seemed to be slowly and noiselessly waving in time to the swing of the clouds above them. There was a strange gray light all over the earth, the fields that had shadowy bloom over them, which only comes from the marriage of dew and moonshine, or frost and starlight. All right, I've taken another hydration break. That's okay. You're doing great. I feel like Thank you. that Mrs. Dormant knows something's up, mm-hmm. and now I think Lady Laura, she about to pop off. We're going to find out, yep. I, was wa- I walked up and down, drinking in the beauty of the quiet earth and the changing sky. The night was absolutely silent. Nothing seemed to be abroad. There were no scurrying of rabbits or twitter of the half-asleep birds. And the clouds, though the clouds were sailing across the sky, the winds that drove them never came low enough to rustle the dead leaves. Across the meadows, I could see the church tower standing out black and gray against the sky. I walked there, thinking over our three months of happiness, of my wife, her dear eyes, her loving ways. Oh, my little girl, my own little girl, what a vision came of then a long, glad life for you and me together. I heard a bell beat from the church, eleven already. I turned to go in, but the night held me. I could not go back to our little warm rooms yet. I would go up to the church. I felt vaguely that it would be good to carry my love and thankfulness to the sanctuary, whether so many loads of sorrow and gladness had been borne by the men and women of dead years. I looked at the low windows as I went by. Laura was half lying on the chair in front of the fire. I could not see her face, only her little head showed dark against the pale blue wall. She was quite still, asleep no doubt. My heart reached out to her as I went on. There must be a God, I thought, and a God that was good. How otherwise could anything be so sweet and dear as she had ever been imagined? I walked slowly along the edge of the wood. A sound broke the stillness of the night. It was rustling. I stopped and listened. The sound stopped too. I went on and now distantly heard another step, other than mine, answer mine like an echo. It was a poacher or a wood stealer, most likely, for these were not unknown in our Arcadian neighborhood. But for whoever it was, he was not a fool to step more lightly. I turned into the wood, and now the footsteps seemed to come from the path I had just left. It must be an echo, I thought. The wood looked perfect in the moonlight. The large dying ferns and the brushwood showed where, through thinning foliage, the pale light came down. The tree trunks stood like gothic columns all around me. They reminded me of the church, and I turned into the beer balk and passed through the corpse gate between the graves to the low porch. I paused for a moment on the stone seat where Laura and I had watched the fading landscape. Then I noticed that the door of the church was open, and I blamed myself for having left it unlatched the other night. We were the only people who ever cared to come to church except on Sundays, and I was vexed to think that through our carelessness, the damp autumn airs had a chance of getting in and injuring the old fabric. I went in. It will seem strange, perhaps, that I should have gone halfway up the aisle before I remembered, with a sudden chill, followed by a sudden rush of self-contempt, that this was the very day and hour, according to the tradition, that the shapes drawed out man-size and marble began to walk. So he's there on the night Mrs. Dorman told them, like, don't be there. Smart guy. Yeah. Having thus remembered the legend, and remember it with a shiver, of which I was ashamed, I could not do it otherwise than walk up towards the altar just to look at the figures, as I said to myself, really. I wanted to assure myself first that I did not believe the legend, and secondly, it was not true. I was rather glad that I had come. I thought I could tell now Mrs. Dorman how vain her fancies were and how peacefully the marble figures slept on through the ghastly hour. With my hands in my pockets, I passed up the aisle. In the gray dim light, the eastern end of the church looked larger than usual, and the arches above the two tombs looked larger, too. The moon came out and showed me the reason. I stopped short. My heart gave a leap that nearly choked me and then sank sickeningly. The bodies, drawed out man-size, were gone, 
and their marble slabs lay wide and bare in the vague moonlight that slanted through the east window. Uh-oh. So they're not there. Yep. <laughs> That's something. Uh-oh. <laughs> Something's happening. Something's happening. Were they really gone? Or was I mad? Clenching my nerves, I stooped and passed my hand over the smooth slabs and felt their flat, unbroken surface. Had some taken the things away? Was it a practical joke? I could make sure anyway. In an instant, I had made a torch of a newspaper which was in my pocket, and lighting it held it above my head. Its yellow glare illuminated the dark arches of the slabs. The figures were gone, and I was alone in the church. Or was I alone? You're not. I don't think you are. And then a horror seized me, a horror indefinable and indescribable, an overwhelming certainty of supreme and accomplished calamity. I flung down the torch and tore along the aisle and out through, biting my lips as I ran to keep myself from shrieking. Oh, was I mad, or was this something that had possessed me? I leapt the churchyard wall and took straight across the fields, led by the light from our windows. Just as I got over the first stile, a dark figure seemed to spring out of the ground. Mad with that uncertainty of misfortune, I made for the thing that stood in my way, and I said, get out of the way, can't you? So he's, like, losing it. <laughs> Aw, snap. But... My push was met with more vigorous resistance than I expected. My arms were caught just above the elbow and held in a vice, as the raw-boned Irish doctor actually shook me. Would ye, he cried in his own mistakable accent, and I'm not going to do an Irish accent, <laughs> would ye then? Let me go, you fool, I gasped. The marble figures have gone from the church. I tell you, they've gone. He broke into a ringing laugh. I'll have to give you a drought tomorrow, you see. You've been smoking too much and listening to old wives' tales. So he's like, I think you had a little too much to drink, my man. Yep. <laughs> I tell you, I've seen the bare slabs. Well, come back with me. I'm going back up to old Palmer's. His daughter's ill. Well, look in the church and let me see the bare slabs. You go if you like, I said, a little less frantic. I'm going to go home to my wife. Rubbish, man, he said. Do you think I'll permit that? Are you to go all your, saying all your life you've seen solid marble endowed with vitality and then to go all my life saying you were a coward? No, sir, you shan't do that. The night air, a human voice, and I think also the physical contact, Brought me back a little bit to my ordinary self, and the word coward was a mental shower bath. Come on, then, I said suddenly, sullenly. Perhaps you're right. He still held my arms tightly. We got over the stile and back to the church. All was still as death. The place was very, smelt very damp and earthy. We walked up the aisle. I am not ashamed to confess that I shut my eyes. I knew the figures would not be there. I heard Kelly strike a match. Here they are, you see, right enough. You've been dreaming or drinking asking your pardon for the imputation. I opened my eyes, and by Kelly's expiring Vesta, I saw two shapes lying in their marble on the slabs. I took a deep breath and caught his hand. I'm awfully indebted to you. It must have been some trick of the light, or I've been working rather hard. Do you know I was quite convinced they were gone? I'm aware of that, he answered rather grimly. You'll have to be careful of that brain of yours, my friend, I assure you. He was leaning over and looking at the right-hand figure, whose stony face was the most villainous and deadly in expression. By Jove, he said, something has been afoot here. This hand was broken. And so it was. I was certain it had been the perfect, the last time Laura and I had seen it there. Perhaps someone tried to remove them, said the young doctor. That won't account for my impression, I objected. Too much painting and tobacco will account for that well enough. <laughs> so things are a little weird, but... Yep. Not quite sure what's going on yet. Come along, I said, or my wife will get anxious. You'll come in and have a drop of whiskey and drink confusion to ghosts and better sense to me. I ought to go up to Palmer's, but it's so late now. I'd best leave it till the morning. I was kept late at the Union. I've had to see a lot of people since. All right, I'll go back with you. 
I think he fancied I needed him more than Palmer's girl, so discussing how such an illusion could have been possible and deducing from this experience large generalities concerning ghostly apparitions, we walked back to our cottage. We saw as we walked up the garden path that the bright light streamed out the front door and presently saw that the door was open. Had she gone out? Come in, I said, and Dr. Kelly followed me into the parlor. It was ablaze with candles, not only the wax ones, but at least a dozen guttering, glaring tallow dips stuck in bases and ornaments in unlikely places. Light, I knew, was Laura's remedy for nervousness, poor child. Why had I left her, brute that I was? We glanced around the room, and at first we did not see her. The window was open, and the drought set all the candles flaring in one way. Her chair was empty, and her handkerchief and book lay on the floor. I turned to the window. There, in the recess of the window, I saw her. Oh, my child, my love, had she gone to that window to watch for me? And what had come into the room behind her? To what she had turned with that look of frantic fear and horror? Oh, my little one, had she thought that I was whose step she heard and turned to meet? What? She had fallen back across the table in the window, and her body lay half on it and half on the window seat, and her head hung down over the table, with brown hair loosened and fallen to the carpet. Her lips were drawn back. Her eyes were wide, wide open. They saw nothing now. What had they seen last? The doctor moved towards her, but I pushed him aside and sprang to her, caught her in my arms and cried, it's all right, Laura, I've got you safe, wife. She fell into my arms in a heap. I clasped and kissed her and called her by all her pet names, but I think I knew all the time that she was dead. Her hands were tightly clenched. In one of them, she held something fast. When I was quite sure that she was dead and that nothing mattered at all anymore, I let him open her hand to see what she held. It was a gray marble finger. Ooh. Yeah. What the hell? So, apparently, the legend was true. They did get up, because remember he was in the woods and he heard footsteps? Yeah. That must have been the statues. Following. Yep. So and when got snatched Laura. Yep, she was she there. She the finger off. Yep. And then ran back into the church. Well, no, she was in the house. They found her. No, the figure. Oh, right, oh, right, church. right. Dang. Yeah. That's a spooker. It was. Though, you know what bothered me through that whole thing? What? Is that he very much, like, uh, not belittled, but, like, he talked to his wife as if she was, like, a child. Yeah. Like, oh, my little one. Oh, like, he seemed to very much, like, I don't know. It was kind of weird. I don't I wasn't a huge fan of him. I wasn't a huge fan of either of them. No. The smartest one in this story was Ms. Dorman, who was not the fuck <laughs> she there. She was like, I got to go. Yeah, she was like, well, I need a new job. They <laughs> going back there. Yeah. So maybe that is a lesson that you should listen to the locals when they tell you something. Absolutely. Yes. That was good. All right. You did a great job. That Thank was a you. good. That was a long story. So. It was. Yeah. I tried to tried to get through it as best I could. You did great. Thank you. I hope everyone liked it. If you didn't or if there's something you'd like done differently, uh, let us know. Yeah. But um, I think otherwise this was a good first one. It was good. All right. You did great. Well, any final things before we wrap up? Mm, no. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, for now, I'm still Celeste. <laughs> and I'm still Caitlin. And we hope you enjoyed your spooky story. Bye. Bye.